This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you listening along. As you do so, make sure that you're going to our website, opportune.com, and subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for a full catalog of previous episodes as well as notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's episode of the show, we're doing a two-part conversation as we place both feet in the new year, getting an overview of the U.S.'s natural gas outlook for 2021. So today, we're starting with part one of this conversation. And though short-term still points to a dicey future for the industry, there's still room for optimism for natural gas companies based on how the broader energy industry is transforming, uh, especially with COVID context, various uh, regulatory changes potentially on the horizon. Uh, Folks might be looking at the natural gas industry along with broader commitments to climate change action and shifts to renewable energy and thinking the industry is in for some challenges. And though it might be, there's also some room to be maybe a little more bullish than natural gas players uh, are feeling at the moment. So to help ground some of these thoughts and break down everything from drilling stats to capital movement and various demand and supply factors, I'd like to welcome Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralph E. Davis, an opportune company. Steve, great to have you on. How are you doing today? Uh, Doing great, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this part one of our two-part conversation. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. As the broader energy industry transforms, adapts, and we see, um, you know, statistics like 2021's new generation of electricity being powered, I think, 80% by renewables and solar leading that charge, uh, I'm sure natural gas players are looking at that and sweating a bit or seeing, ah, we are not part of the future. Would you agree, disagree with that? You know, when you see that news that is pushing towards, um, you know, a a more renewable energy-focused future for the states and globally, uh, how does that intersect with sentiments that are being felt right now in the natural gas industry? Right. Well, I think I'd start by saying that renewables right now account for probably about 20% of our uh, electrical power generation in the United States. It has been the fastest growing sector over the last few years, um, partly because it has been relatively small, right? So it's been fairly easy for it to grow at pretty high rates. I think that growth is going to continue, um, but it it probably will have uh, some slowdown uh, in terms of a percentage growth, but still be meaningful. Um, when I think about how renewables can interact with natural gas, I think a couple things come to mind. One is, um, as we know, uh, long-term, large-scale battery storage is not yet economically viable. Uh, there are a lot of people working on that. But today, uh, when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, uh, we need some sort of backup power supply. And and really, natural gas is the perfect um 
the perfect fuel for that because it's easy to start and stop natural gas fired generators. So I think that they there's a certain amount of um, co-evolution they're going to have, uh, despite the fact that, that down the road, it could be possible that um, natural, I'm sorry, that uh, renewables uh, will eat into natural gas's share of the energy mix, particularly around electricity. We just really haven't seen that happen yet, though. Let's go ahead and lay the landscape a little bit more specifically for natural gas outlook in 2021, and then we'll hone in on some different demand and supply factors that you see uh, guiding the industry into 2021, setting some of those price points and, uh, you know, um, managing levels of optimism for players in the space. So at a general level, what makes you feel optimistic about natural gas outlook in 2021? And... In your answer, can you also uh, specify for who exactly should this be optimistic, right? Which players and, um, you know, professionals in the broader energy space should actually be feeling optimism? Uh, go ahead and break that down for us. Well, like most commodities, um, natural gas is a cyclical business. And uh, we are, unfortunately, we've just been living through a pretty low spot. Um, so, you may have heard me say before, I think when we spoke last time, I may have made the comment that, uh, you know, the cure for low prices is low prices. And the reason that is, is just as we've seen, companies stop drilling, stop completing new wells, and eventually that works its way into supply. So um, that's going to be, as we talk a little bit more, that's going to be a pretty important factor is how, what is happening to supply. So um, the other side of it is uh, demand and the the big demand um Probably in the near term, obviously, the big demand influencer has been the effects of the pandemic and how that has reduced travel, reduced consumption, not just in the United States, but worldwide, and how that has slowed down economic activity. And of course, energy consumption is highly correlated to economic activity. So I, I think with the idea, uh, with the belief anyway, that the pandemic um, may be nearing its end, and I, I say maybe nearing because I think we do have quite a ways to go to uh, roll out vaccines to everybody to a point where folks feel safe um, traveling and jobs are restored. Um, and then it'll take time for those things to work their way through the economy. So people start spending more money that creates more jobs. Those people start spending money. You know, it's a virtuous cycle. And so it's going to take, uh, I think, until the later half of this year and into 2022 before we see that economic activity fully restored. Um, but uh, we're at least on the road to that recovery. You mentioned uh, some production characteristics for uh, gas wells. Can you get a little more specific there? I know you have a lot of detailed knowledge there. Uh, could you break down maybe how production has shifted since COVID, whether that is a technology related, uh, workforce related, or like you were describing about just a general dip in demand, uh, more procedural and operational? Sure. Well, when we think about the supply side and, and what's been going on recently, um, even, of course, it makes perfect sense that the recent events are, are going to be influenced and um by some of the things that have happened uh, over the longer term in our history. And so when we think about what's been going on in the last decade, uh, we've had this tremendous growth of unconventional production um, really across the whole country. And we had a, an industry that was 
I would say, I wouldn't use the word exploration because we really knew where these shales were. There was a lot of uncertainty, though, about how well they would produce. Um, And so we had uh, operators going into all sorts of different plays um, to see if they could be successful in developing economic hydrocarbons. Uh, That is pretty much over. Uh, We kind of have a pretty good idea where the plays are. And in the process of doing that, we um, we spent a lot of money as an industry. There was a tremendous amount of capital that poured in, uh, taking risk on assets that might or might not uh, work out to be the next great thing. Um, what we found out was two things. One of them, a lot of those areas didn't work out very well. Uh, number two, we spent a lot of money increasing supply and we uh, ended up with an oversupplied situation that harmed prices for everyone, making the the economics of, of course, everyone's deal look worse, but particularly that was harmful to the folks that didn't have the highest quality acreage. So now we've got a couple things going on. One is um, the industry is striving to get better capital discipline, and this is being enforced on it by its investors, uh, both on the banking side, the the debt side, and on the equity side. Um, The growth phase, the land grab phase is over. People want to see companies uh, uh, maintain themselves, maintain their production, grow their production with less continual influx of new capital. And so that that sort of discipline is resulting in a couple things. One is we've got lower uh, capital availability and it's driving people to the to the best assets. Now, here in the United States, we've got a couple of really good gas plays. And if you look around at where specifically gas directed drilling is happening, you really don't have to look a whole lot further than the Marcellus and the Hainesville plays. Now, there are other areas where there is some gas drilling going on, or there are areas where it's kind of oil-focused, liquid-focused drilling, and they're going to make gas as well. But really, the Marcellus and the Haynesville are, are the really the, the top two plays. And within their core, they have some very economic drilling at current prices. So I think we'll see that continue um, over the next year, certainly, and probably over the next several years that those two plays will be um, continue to be active. But with the slowdown in drilling across the rest of the country, gas-directed drilling, but also oil-directed drilling that can produce associated gas, we're seeing a tightening up of supply. And that's starting to manifest itself in a couple ways. One is that we see the um, the expectations for withdrawals from storage are are planned to be pretty high this year. That is, we're starting to see the effects of not drilling as much. Production decline is fairly steep for these unconventional plays, which represent a very large percentage of what we are producing today due to this decade-long focus on unconventionals. And so they're declining fairly rapidly, and we're um, having to draw more out of storage this winter than we have in the past several winters. So we see that. That's being supportive of prices. And um, the uh, EIA, for instance, is projecting that we're going to see some higher prices next year um, because of this tightening up of supply. So it's it's really, I guess, to kind of summarize, it's, um, it's driven somewhat by the low prices we're in right now, that drilling activity is reduced, but also because of a increased focus on capital discipline 
that investors are only really willing to put money in things that they are certain are going to make money, um, not and and not willing to chase new ideas like they were over the last, let's call it 10 years. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point, Steve. Obviously, we cannot really talk about 2021 outlook without considering the major ways that COVID completely reshaped the landscape for energy production, uh, mostly for energy demand. Uh, But then, you know, when demand is decreased, there's going to be a natural decline in operating wells. Supply is going to decrease and it's going to, like you said, create this uh, sort of symbiotic relationship. Um, And all of that is very tied to COVID. So now that we're nearing the end of the pandemic, or at least... um, you know, it's it's worst or most unpredictable stages, because as much as I say that we are seeing record numbers still here in the U.S. of covid cases. So things are are getting worse to some degree in the short term. But there's also a vaccine around the corner and plans for a large scale widespread vaccination. So the hope is that by the end of the year, things are at least if not more normal, just more manageable. So with all of this in mind, how do you see the expected increased economic activity over the next one to two years as COVID becomes something that, you know, either we just power through more or uh, does become a manageable part of everyday life? Uh, How do you imagine that sort of increased economic activity with that management of COVID shaping natural gas production over the next one to two years? Right. Well, I think you make a very good point. You know, I I commented earlier that maybe the end of the pandemic was in sight, but yet here we are at probably the worst it's been. So uh, we do have a ways to go to get out of the woods in terms of our public health. And I'm I'm afraid we're probably um, still at maybe our darkest time is yet to come. Um, nevertheless, I think part of that is due to just the way that um, we have chosen as a society to respond to the pandemic. And I don't know that we are going to um, that that's going to get much worse. I think that we probably are at a we're definitely at a low level of economic lower level of economic activity than we otherwise would be. Um, clearly, a lot of people are out of work. I don't know how much worse it actually gets, though. And uh, with the changing administration, it seems like there's a prospect for additional um, support for the folks that are struggling the most with um, their particular labor situation. So maybe we say that the economic outlook uh, is not uh, as dark as perhaps the public health outlook is. So I suspect that if if that's all true and we're able to roll out the uh, vaccines in a in a reasonable amount of time, obviously we're off to what I would call a pretty slow start. Um, but if we can get that ramped up and let's say get through the bulk of the population by uh, the fall, uh, the early fall, then um, we might be in a position to really see the economy starting to get back to where it would be, uh, or I should say would have been, or you know, growing at the rate it should be growing at. Um, probably sometime during the course of next year. So um, I guess the way I interpret how I think my outlook would play into energy 
prices or energy demand is it's it probably is uh, starts to get a little bit better this year than it was last year. I think that's what the EIA is predicting as well, or maybe a slight downturn. It just depends on uh, the mix depends a little bit. So I think where the EIA is is that the um, um, because of the reasons I mentioned a moment ago that are, that are affecting natural gas supply. Uh, natural gas prices are likely to go up a bit next year, and that could put pressure, at least in their forecast. They expect that coal will regain a little bit of the um, energy mix due to price competition. And so while prices improve, it's somewhat at a uh, slightly reduced demand for natural gas. I feel like the conversation is leaning very heavily on supply and demand factors. So I want to go ahead and just get your thoughts on more specific factors that have been uh, influencing either the demand of natural gas or the uh, waning supply of natural gas. So let's go ahead and get into those and how they're uh, going to impact prices in 2021. Uh, I want to start by drawing from some analysis that you and your colleagues have made on 2020's base oil production decline, which you've mentioned a bit already in your answers, but let's just get more specific with it. Uh, as the industry responded to this steep drop in demand, we saw a decline of existing wells and this is now looking like it's going to become a permanent reduction of available natural gas supply, which will in turn contribute to a tighter supply and demand balance. So can you give us some more context on this reduction in supply and how it has impacted natural gas prices already, as well as maybe some thoughts on how it will continue to impact natural gas prices? Right. Well, we did a study um, a few months ago where we attempted to investigate what was the underlying a base production decline of the wells that were on production at that point. And I think this was about the middle of last year. And what we were trying to illustrate was just uh, two points. One, which I think most folks uh, in the business are familiar with, um, unconventional resources by uh, due to the nature of the reservoirs they produce from, they have very high uh, decline rates. And number two, we have over the last year, large percent of our production being supplied by wells from those types of formations. As a result, our oil, our U.S. oil production and our U.S. natural gas production have very high underlying base production decline. Something, for instance, for natural gas, probably the aggregate decline rate would be about 40 I'll say 40 percent, probably somewhere around that, not, not recalling the, the numbers from the study right now. Now, that those wells are going to continue to decline. Of course, we're going to replace those with additional wells. But because the um, because the investment rates are down, because prices are lower, it takes time to bring wells on, of course. I think what we're going to see is, and what we are starting to see, is this reduction in production that could create a somewhat tight, tighter um, supply-demand um balance this year. And I, and I think that's why the EIA and um, others are projecting a uh, an improvement in prices to above $3 um, an MMBTU uh, during 2021. I'll add to that, you know, we talked a little bit, uh, so we were kicking around the idea about supply and demand. And um, we've talked about, I think, what kind of the two, the two big elephants, especially on the short term, um, from a short-term perspective, are the pandemic and its impact on economic activity, and then the slowdown in drilling that's driven by lower prices, uh, lower capital availability, increased capital discipline, 
and um, how those two, those are kind of short-term activities, or, or should say short-term influences, but there are other things that I think are maybe a little bit more longer term that are continue to, that will continue to play a role in the outlook for natural gas beyond just 2021. And, and I think those are, you know, they're, they're mixed, of course, but I think on balance, they could be favorable for natural gas. A um, couple things with respect to electricity generation. I think that uh, we've seen over the last several years a continual decline in the use of coal. We may see blips in that, but I suspect that that's just going to continue on until coal represents a, a fairly insignificant part of our electricity mix. There's a tremendous um, political pressure on coal. It's a um, large emitter of CO2 compared to natural gas for the same amount of energy. It's almost double. I think it's very unlikely that some of the technology that is kicked around um, that would allow us to, say, store CO2 from coal-fired plants, I'm just not convinced that the economics are there with where our current tax regime is um, that supplies tax credits for that sort of activity. And I just think that a lot of capital providers, they are under, of course, they want good economic returns. They're also starting to feel more pressure from uh, folks that are concerned about climate change. And I think it's just going to be very hard to um, ever build a new significantly sized coal-fired plant in the United States. And it's hard to refurbish them to keep them going. So I expect we'll continue to see retirements of coal-fired gen over time. Now, we are going to see continued growth uh, in renewables. but as I mentioned, I think that we uh, there, there's room for natural gas to exist alongside that. Obviously, it's, it is somewhat of a competition, but I, I guess the way I look at it is that it's um, natural gas and renewables are going to be competing for coal's market share over the next several years uh, and beyond. Um, you know, I've, I've actually seen some things, too, on the demand side that are related to um, kind of related to the renewables and environmental side of the equation that illustrate that maybe uh, natural gas has some um, some angles that uh, it could end up participating in that, you know, we don't really think about it. It may not be just direct head-to-head competition between these two fuel sources, or that is natural gas and renewables, wind or solar. Uh, for instance, I read a paper the other day that um, – it was put out by people who have a skin in the game, but they were comparing some uh, economics to um, battery-powered fleet vehicles to compressed natural gas fleet vehicles. Now, when you think about it, if you're if you're running a battery-powered fleet vehicle like a bus or other, um, you know, maybe a delivery truck or something like that, you have to get that electricity to charge the battery from somewhere. And as we've already discussed, only about 20% of that's coming from renewables today. So as we see folks move from transportation fuels like gasoline and diesel and try to shift over to electricity, that's going to be uh, favorable for natural gas. Now, it may not be so good for oil, but it does. It should increase demand for natural gas as, as it has an impact on increased demand for electricity. But even so, um, there are compressed natural gas vehicles that can compete very successfully against uh, battery-powered vehicles, maybe more energy efficient, and also be less expensive to, um, to build in the first place. So th- there's, there's opportunities like that. 
And I also read about an, an idea that was new to me um, that referred to uh, something called green hydrogen, which is where uh, a renewable resource is used to generate hydrogen through electrolysis of water. And that hydrogen is then mixed into an existing natural gas stream and sent to a power plant where it's burned um, together, right, to generate electricity, just as we normally would go through our existing systems. But it, um, of course, since part of that fuel stream it would be hydrogen, there wouldn't be any CO2 emissions associated with that. So, an interesting idea that does somewhat crowd out natural gas, but at the same time, it is, um, uh, I guess, perpetuating the use of natural gas. So uh, I think that's favorable for the industry. All right. Well, Steve, I don't want to call the conversation yet, but we're going to go ahead and do so and continue chatting in part two of this podcast. So till then, we've been chatting with Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralphie Davis, an opportune company. Steve, I appreciate you uh, joining us so far and looking forward to continuing this conversation soon. Yeah, you bet, Daniel. It's been great. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes or make sure that you don't miss out on part two of our conversation, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to our podcast and make sure that you're going to our website, opportune.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.